God's blessings upon you. We're preaching through the Gospel of Luke. And we're at Luke chapter 7 this morning. Turn there, if you would, uh, with me. And if you'd like to take some notes, there's a sermon study guide available to you. If you didn't get one, lift up your hand and the ushers will get one to you this morning. Uh, I kind of like the fill-in-the-blank method to help you remember some of the key truths. And we're doing it a little different this morning, so... Uh, don't worry about that study guide until at the end of the message. We'll fill it out at that point. Don't think that I've forgotten about it. How many of you? How many of you? How many of you? We'll get a little private here, a little personal. How many of you used to enjoy a kiss on the first date? Don't have to lift up your hands. Oh, we got one dear sister. Way to go, James. <laughs> Your wife was raising her hand. <laughs> I hope you were the one, brother. <laughs> she said yes. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, the, the, this young man had taken a girl out. It was their first date, and it had been a glorious evening. And uh, at the uh, end of the night, he decided to uh, try that first all-important first kiss on the first date with an air of cons- confidence. He leaned over uh, against the wall, and he smiled at her, and he said, Hey, good-looking. How about, how about a, a good night kiss? A kiss? Are you crazy? My, my parents will find out. Oh, come on now. Who, who's going to be up at this hour? No, no please. Uh, uh, what, what if we get caught, she said. Oh, come on. Uh, nobody's going to notice. Uh, nobody's around. Uh, as he leaned against the wall, he said, they're all sleeping. No way. It's just too risky. Please. No. He says, oh, yes, you can. Please. Come on. Pucker up. Just one little one. No way. This is just our first date. He leaned back against the wall, and again, he stressed, Please, just one. All of a sudden, the front door opened up. Here, her younger sister is there in her pajamas. Her hair's all messed up. And uh, she looks at her sister and says, Dad sent me down. Mom and Dad told me to, to tell you, kiss them. Get it over with. Or I'll kiss them. Or Dad said he'll come down and, and kiss them. Just get your hand off the intercom button. We want to go to sleep. First kiss, first love, real love. Luke chapter 7, to understand it. Luke chapter 7, the chapter ends up with a true account. I don't like using the word story. It's a narrative. It's an account about a woman looking for real love. I believe it begins in Luke 7, Uh, 35, 36, right about in there. But I'll come to our main text later on uh, in the message. You see, this woman, uh, if you'd find her in Luke chapter 7, you'd find her hurrying through the streets. You'd find her pace quickened. She's searching. It's dark at night, and she, she needs to be somewhere. She needs to be at a party. 
that she hasn't been invited to. She needs to be with someone at that party. She intends to be a party crasher. Had anyone looked at her carefully, they would have noticed that at one time she must have been very beautiful, very pretty. But her hard life had caused lines and wrinkles to come on her prematurely. Her heavy, lathered-on makeup, her gaudy dress couldn't hide the fact that she was being used and abused as a woman. We don't know her complete story, but commonly women like her. The stats tell us this. Women of her vocation and her lifestyle were most commonly abused as little girls. And so they grow up constantly seeking real love, only to be used and abused again and again. And so as adults, these often sell themselves to the highest bidder. You see, Luke reports in Luke chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, he simply reports that this woman is a sinner. A sinner. I want you to know that this is Bible code. This is Bible code. In that day and time, Luke is being very delicate in the use of his language, but uh, all scholars, all commentators agree. This is Bible code. This woman was a prostitute. And listen, no matter how much Hollywood tries to give glitz and glamour to the lifestyle of call girls, prostitutes, I want this congregation to know it's no pretty woman experience. But it's a living hell. Do a little research like I did. The stats show that, as I said, most of these women were abused sexually and physically as little girls. And they believe that they're damaged goods, so they might as well sell themselves. Most are forced to do unspeakable acts with drunken, smelly, violent men. And then there's the sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, there's the unwanted pregnancies. There's the, 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 the abortions. Uh, the stats also show us that the man who visits a prostitute, based upon the number of tricks the average prostitute performs every year, both now and in ancient times, that man, especially in unprotected sex, will have had intimate relations with about 2,000 men because of that one prostitute. It's no wonder most feel terribly empty inside all the time. Prostitutes will tell you it's never about the sex. In the beginning, it might have been wanting a man to love them, but that rarely ever happens when they're no longer desirable. These are discarded like junk, garbage, uneducated, no self-respect, most with a criminal record. It's a hellish life 
no one would wish it upon any woman or any man. This is the kind of woman that we discover in the last portion of Luke chapter 7 who's hurriedly going through the streets at night, going to a party. Why is she going to a party? Why does she desperately want to see someone, a guest at the party? Who is this guest that this woman desperately wants to, to be with and see? Who? Jesus. And that's who we pray to right now. Jesus, Lord, you were sending us a message by allowing this account to appear in the Word. Speak through your Word this morning. Grant us ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to the church in this hour. Amen. You see, Jesus had been invited to a, a dinner party hosted by Simon. Simon, a leading religious figure of the day. Simon, the Bible says, who was of the religious order of the Pharisees. Luke 7.36, Luke 7.36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. The word Pharisee tells us a lot about Simon. It tells us that he was of the ultra-conservative religious order known as the separated ones. The word Pharisee means separated ones. They felt that everyone else outside of their religious order was unrighteous and unholy. That they were the only ones that really walked with God and were in right relationship with God. The Pharisees began in the intertestamental period, that period between the Old and the New Testament. They began as an order to bring the Jews back to a pure worship. They began rightly. But by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, they're operating wrongly. This religious order of the Pharisees had now been caught up with the trappings of religion instead of the heart of religion. They loved to dress in their religious garb, the Bible says, and show off how righteous and how holy they were. They would walk through the marketplace with their hands held high because if they touched anyone or if anyone touched them, they would be ceremonially unclean and defiled. They would have people blow trumpets anytime they gave to the poor. Twenty-eight times, twenty-eight times, Luke records the word Pharisee. And every time it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees are in opposition to Jesus. They ended up being his worst enemies. The super spiritual. The holy Joes. The self-righteous Pharisees. This is who has invited Jesus to a party. Upon entering Simon's home, Simon didn't give Jesus uh, the usual social amenities. He didn't give Jesus the common courtesies of the day. Think of it. When you invite somebody to your home, 
when you invite someone to a party, you usually give them common courtesies that many of us take for granted. Can you imagine coming to someone's house that's invited you over for dinner, and you knock on the door and there's a note there? It's open. Just let yourself in. And you come in, and the whole family that's invited you over for dinner, they're all sitting around watching TV. Nobody gets up and, and, and shakes your hand. No, nobody stands up and, and gives you a hug. Nobody offers uh, at all to take your coat and, and hang it up for you. In fact, they're sitting around watching TV and they don't even point out a seat for you to sit. You're just standing there with your coat on, wondering what in the world is going They don't offer you anything to drink or eat. In fact, they just turn up the TV even louder, and you're just standing there. That's what Jesus went through. When Jesus came to the house of Simon, Jesus was not greeted with a kiss, which was the custom of that day. The host would kiss you on the cheek. Still the custom today in the Mediterranean world. Jesus did not have his feet washed, the Bible says. The roads, the pathways uh, of ancient Palestine were, were dusty. They were dirty. People didn't wear shoes or boots like you're wearing. At most, they wore sandals. They didn't have sewers in the ancient days of Palestine. It was open sewers. Need I explain anything more? Foot washing was a common, common, common social amenity. Usually you would be greeted by the host who would have a servant wash your feet and then wipe them off with a towel. And then, not only would your feet be washed, your head would be anointed with olive oil that would be perfumed, scented with spices. Because in that day and time, they didn't have air freshener. They didn't have deodorant. They didn't take a shower every day. Anointing with oil that was scented was not only a common courtesy, boy, it made things smell a whole lot better at a party. So Jesus comes. He's not greeted with a kiss. His feet aren't washed. And He's not anointed upon the head with perfumed olive oil. And we find out that He noticed it. It caught His attention. So why did Simon have Jesus at his house? We don't find that Simon was trying to trip Jesus up and, and entrap him as many of the Pharisees tried. We definitely don't see Simon as a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. Why did Simon have Jesus at his house? It was very common at the end of dinner to have some form of entertainment. Poetry read, music sung, a dance. I'm convinced, and most scholars are convinced, that Jesus was there to be the entertainment of the night. 
Simon wanted to be the toast of the town, a celebrity. He'd heard about this prophet. He'd heard about this miracle worker. Maybe Jesus would perform a miracle. So Jesus is there, not as an honored guest, but as a clown, a performer, an entertainer. So following the customs of the times, Jesus went not inside the house, but outside to the courtyard. It's in the cool of the evening. Usually there'd be a fountain. And, and many of you, when you think of the Last Supper, you think of Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper that's become so famous with the da Vinci Code, and you see the disciples sitting at the table. I want you to know that's all wrong. Da Vinci had it all wrong. Many of you are well aware of the cultural context of that day and time in the Mediterranean world with the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews. They would not sit on chairs when they would eat. They would not sit at a table when they would eat. They would recline on the left side on couches known as the triclinium. The triclinium. They notice as they recline on the left side, boy, somebody's going to have fun on our website on this video cast, aren't they? I hope they come at the beginning of the sermon and not come right now in the sermon. They would lean on the left side and eat with the right. The true triclinium's the couches were inclined, inclined, not level, so that your feet were much lower than your head where you were eating. Do you remember in the story of the Last Supper, by the way, that John leaned upon Jesus? Well, what's, what is that all about? Well, if you wanted to talk to someone behind you, you had to literally lean upon them to be heard and converse. The servants would come in the middle of the triclinium, and there they would serve the food and the drink to all the guests. Many times there would be a fountain, as I said, in the very center. This is how the eating was done in the ancient world. At night they'd light torches, Many times the neighborhood would come and stand outside in the backyard and watch the party. I imagine that Simon, uh, again, he wanted to be the talk of the town with his party. And his entertainer of the evening, Jesus. But his plans are all dashed when suddenly a party crasher appears. A prostitute. And what is this prostitute doing? Is she singing? No, she's sobbing. The Bible says she's weeping. And she comes behind Jesus who's reclining on the couch. And she comes because she feels so unworthy. Not to His face or His head. He, she comes to His feet. And she's sobbing, she's weeping so uncontrollably. Her tears splash down upon his dirty, unwashed feet. 
tear after tear splashes down upon Jesus' dirty feet. And then she unbinds her hair and wipes the feet of Jesus and dries them with her own long hair. It had to be waist-length hair, uncut hair. And weeping, she then takes her most precious possession of all, perfume preserved in an alabaster tube that women like her would carry around her neck, her most prized possession. She wouldn't keep it in a safe. She wouldn't keep it locked up somewhere, but hung around her neck, and then she poured it all without measure upon His feet. And then after pouring the perfume on Jesus' feet, what did she do next? The Bible says, she bowed over. She knelt down and began to kiss the feet of Jesus. The Greek, the original language is so very interesting. It's the continuous action verb there. It means that she kissed His feet repeatedly. In other words, she smothered His feet with her kisses. In the ancient world, to kiss someone's feet was the sign of absolute reverence. It is the display, it is a demonstration of worship. Yes, all that she is doing is all about worship. 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 And guess what? It caught the attention of our Lord. Her worship caught the attention of Jesus. Who's sitting at another couch? Who's reclining at another couch on the other side of the triclinium? Who's watching with focused attention at this prostitute that Jesus, Jesus is letting a prostitute Kiss his feet. Wipe his feet with her hair. Perfume his feet. Who's watching? And who in their mind, in their heart, is already condemning Jesus? Who? Simon, the host. He didn't say it. Like so many people, he thought it. He thought it. Luke 7.39 if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman that she is. That she is a sinner. I want you to see what he's saying here. It's much deeper than a casual observance of this Scripture. He is not only saying... He is not only condemning Jesus as not being a prophet. He's saying, this man has not been sent by God. This is not a man of God. In fact, this man must be an immoral, unrighteous man. In fact, he is presupposing in his judgment and his condemnation, undoubtedly, he has had a secret sin that he has performed with this woman. That's how deep it goes in the original. He's thinking all of these things. Did it bypass Jesus? 
Simon imagined that his thoughts were kept to himself. But Jesus read Simon's thoughts like reading words on a page. Now look at our main text this morning. I want you to catch a hold of this. I want this Word of God to speak to your heart. Don't let it speak just to Simon. Let it speak to you this morning. Luke 7, 44, Then Jesus turned to the woman, and He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Simon has already judged and said that Jesus doesn't perceive the woman. Jesus flips it around and says, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my, my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much. Can you repeat those words with me? She loved much. Again, she loved much. Say it like a preacher. She loved much. I want you to remember that. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, or he or she who has a very low realization, a low awareness, a low revelation of grace, loves little, praises little, worships little. We don't know how Simon reacted, but we do know that Simon was exposed. Simon knew everything about theology. He knew everything about religiosity. Simon knew everything about the things of God. But Simon didn't know God. And he didn't know how to touch the heart of God. And this happens all the time in the church and in Christian circles. Here in Luke 7, why has this been included in the Bible? Jesus dealt with all kinds of, uh, 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 of sinners. And not all the stories are included in the Bible. Uh, John says if all the stories of Jesus were included in the Bible, no book could hold them. Why has this been selected? Because the first real worshiper was not a prophet. The first real worshiper was not a pastor or a preacher. The first real worshiper in the Bible, in the New Testament, is a prostitute. And that gives me hope, and it gives you hope too. I want to ask you, as we examine this account in Luke 7, before you condemn Simon, what about you? Are you more like Simon? Or are you like the woman of Luke chapter 7? Every year at this time, as we approach our annual praise gathering, I set a theme for the new year. And the Lord has planted a theme in my spirit that I give you this morning. It's the title of this message, Let the Worshippers Arise. Let the worshipers arise. The Lord has given me 
as your pastor, this word for our church in the days ahead in 2014. And I ask you, what was it about this woman's worship that caught the attention of our Lord? What was it about her worship that so touched His heart and allowed for the greatest of miracles? The passage, if you'll study it, reveals powerful truths that I'd like you to write down this morning as you fill in the blanks. You, you see, before we get to the first truth this morning, would you agree with me? This woman, this woman, this woman in Luke 7, she was desperate for God. Desperate for God. Despite being un uninvited, despite the risk of being a, a party crasher, uh, despite being a prostitute, despite being unclean, and defiling anyone that she touched, despite what people thought, uh, despite the risk of defiling Jesus, she was desperate for God. She was determined to press into the presence of our Lord no matter what. And the Lord notices this. It caught His attention. And He moved according to her desperate act. Truth number one, write it down. When real worshipers arise, they demonstrate a passion to press into the Lord's presence. When real worshipers arise, they show passion to press into the presence of the Lord. You see, when there's real passion, no one has to urge you to worship. Where there's real passion, no one has to stand behind a keyboard and say, Come on, church! Come on, lift your hands. Come on, sing. Come on, shout. Nobody has to do that. It becomes the natural overflow of your love, your passion, your adoration, your devotion for the Lord. Where there's real passion, no one has to compel you to come to the altar. The preacher doesn't have to keep saying, Come, come, come. Where there's real passion, no one has to preach at you on the importance of uh, prayer uh, or purity or winning the lost. No, no one has to preach at you to be committed to ministry. Uh, again, it just becomes the natural, the natural overflow of a heart that is sold out to God no matter what. There's no cost. There's no sacrifice. There's no effort that's too... Ain't no mountain high enough. To keep you from loving your Lord. Can I hear an amen to that? A good Motown amen. It happened again this year at the Super Bowl. They not only sold tickets before the Super Bowl, they sold ticket stubs after the Super Bowl. You say, why would anyone want to settle for a ticket stub to prove to their friends that they had been at the game to lie to show off that they had been a part of the Super Bowl but it's fakery it's being a phony it's settling for a stub instead of the genuine article how many, how many, how many fill our pews in our churches and they've settled for a stub of religion? 
They have settled for being a Simon instead of this woman of Luke chapter 7. Uh, they come to church uh, for entertainment. Uh, they, they like the music. Uh, like Simon, they're looking for entertainment. Uh, they like the preacher's jokes. Uh, they're willing to sit back and even watch others, uh, but not to press in. Not to kiss the feet of Jesus in worship because they've settled for a stub. They've settled for the superficial. They've settled for uh, the show. Uh, uh, they've, they've settled for a shallow sense uh, of spirituality. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to settle for a stub. Of the genuine article. I want the real deal. I want the real thing. I don't want the breeze. I want the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit moving upon us, moving in our church, moving in our worship, moving in my life, my heart. I don't want a trickle. I want a, a fresh flow of the river of God's Spirit moving here at Lakeside. I want to see the worshipers arise as God breathes His Spirit upon us. I don't want to settle for a stub. You can't do anything with a sub. Stub is just fakering. It's hollow. It's shallow. This woman was unabashedly, note it, was expressive in her worship of the Lord. She didn't sit back and just watch Jesus. She had to press in and touch Him. And she touched Him expressively. Write it down. Truth number two, the Bible teaches when real worshipers arise, they are expressive. They are expressive. They are expressive with the whole of their persons to the Lord. The Bible not only teaches us the purpose of praise and worship, the Bible teaches us the performance of praise and worship. I remind you, this woman... She wiped the feet of Jesus. She wept in the presence of Jesus. She showed her emotions. She was expressive. She was not God's chosen frozen. When she went to church and when she entered into the presence of the Lord, she did not act like an embalmed dead saint. She got expressive. In the presence of the Lord. Where in the world did the idea ever come in Christian circles that when we come to church, we need to lock ourselves into a pew and shut our mouth and shut our expression and, and put on our emotional seatbelt in case we would get a little, uh, give a little display of, of, of emotion and expressiveness. It's okay to get expressive at the football game. It's okay to get expressive about the Olympics. It's okay to, to shout when I watch the Pistons make a basketball game and finally win it. But in church, I have to be God's chosen frozen. You won't find that in the Word whatsoever. One of the chief forms of praise and worship is singing. 
singing praise over 300 times in the Bible. We are commanded to enter into the God's presence with singing and with song. But Psalms 149, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the saints. This is why we sing here at Lakeside. Think of what singing praise offers when we sing together. We're singing at the same time. We're singing the same tune. We're singing the same words. We're singing the same tempo. The cumulative effect is dynamic as God's people are brought together in oneness into the presence of the Lord. Don't sing songs. Sing praise. Don't sing just words. Sing worship unto He who is the lover of your soul. Amen. God's Word teaches us that our bodies are to be an instrument of praise. One of the greatest points of resistance that I see as a pastor time and time again is when we are exhorted to lift our hands in worship and praise to the Lord. I have actually seen people get visibly upset and angry when they're asked to lift up their hands in praise and worship or to clap before the Lord. I want you to know that you know, often I'm asked when people first attend a church like this, why do you people lift up your hands? Why do you people clap? Why do you bow? Why do you stand in God's presence? These are all biblical admonitions. These are biblical injunctions. These are biblical commands as positive forms of worship and praise unto the Lord. Look with what God's Word says. 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere. What? Lifting up holy hands. How about Psalms 47 verse 1, O clap your hands all ye people. Psalms 135, verse 2, Praise the name of our Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, you that stand in the house of the Lord. How about Ephesians 3.14, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If time would permit, I would show you over and over and over and over again how there should be no point of resistance in your body at all that God is pleased as you lift your hands, as you bow, as you dance, as you sing, as you shout unto the Lord. It is glorious unto God. It's a way of touching the heart of God. It shows passion in His presence. I want to remind you that a church like Lakeside Assembly of God is a church of both word and spirit. I don't ask people to check in their brains when they come through the front door of this church. Everything that we practice in our worship should be grounded and founded in the Holy Word of God. You show me, you show me a church that is void of the teaching, the solid teaching of God's Word and only puts uh, uh, focus on the Spirit. And I'll show you a church uh, where you have fanaticism, where you have false doctrine, where you have emotional excess. But you show me a church that is nothing but word, 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 and no Holy Spirit, and I'll show you a church that's of a barren orthodoxy, a church of intellectualism, a dead church. But where there is a balance of both word and spirit, there's power. And that's where I want to be at. That's where I want Lakeside Assembly of God to be at. Let the worshipers arise. Hallelujah. Let the worshipers arise. This woman's worship, this woman's worship, think of it, 
allowed her to experience the miraculous. The miraculous. The greatest miracle is not a healing miracle. The greatest miracle is not a financial miracle. The greatest miracle is when a, a sinner has been set free and has an eternal home with God forevermore. Never forget that. She came burdened with her sins. She came into the Lord's presence with her desperate need. She came with the greatest need of all, a sin-burdened heart. In Luke chapter, 30, Luke chapter 7, uh, verse uh, uh, 50, Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Write it down, truth number three. When real worshipers arise with passion for God's presence, it becomes the starting point for experiencing the miraculous. Do you need a miracle? I'll ask you again, do you need a miracle? Do you need an answer to prayer? The starting point for the miraculous is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and it relates perfectly to praise and worship. The writer of Hebrews composes here in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is. And here it is. Here's the operative phrase. And that He is a rewarder of them that diligently, diligently, diligently seek Him. Do you see the passion? Do you see getting desperate for God? God notices. God, His attention is grabbed when you diligently seek after Him. That's the operative phrase there. Praise and worship is a demonstration of those who diligently, passionately are desperate for God. When, when you move into praise and worship with a real heart, instead of just going through religiosity. When you sing the words as words to the lover of your soul with, with, with desperate passion, God takes notice of that as He took notice of the woman's love for Him, devotion for Him in the home of Simon. Let me show you how this works. It was 30 years ago that I had the glorious privilege of being a father the first time. But as I saw my little girl being taken out of the womb of my wife in the delivery room, she was all blue and not breathing. I knew right away something was wrong. Long story short, our Julie was transported by emergency downtown from Livonia downtown to the children's hospital to the neonatal ward. And there on life support, Highlands Membrane Disease, what JFK's son died from. And I can remember going in there with such a heavy heart, garbed from head to foot, the hairnet, the surgical mask, the whole garb and gown, the shoes, slip-ons on my feet, and seeing my little girl wires and tubes and 
hanging between life and death, no chest at all, completely flat because the lungs were not breathing properly. And I remember asking the head nurse, how is my little girl doing? And she looked me in the eye and she says, I've got to be frank and serious with you. She's not doing well at all. <laughs> I drove up the Lodge Freeway. I remember that day crying uncontrollably behind the wheel and pleading with God, begging with God. And all of a sudden, a word came to me. Stop pleading and start praising. Stop pleading and start praising me for the miracle. Start praising me for the miracle. And my God language took over. And I was no longer praising in English. I was praising in the Spirit. And I probably was weaving as I was going north on the lodge. And all of a sudden, there came a sense of victory that, that moved into that vehicle. I turned around, went back to that neonatal. They greeted me at the, the door of the ward of neonatal. And they were, I'm so excited you're back, Mr. Chris. There has been a dramatic turnaround. We can't believe it. I said, I can. I can. I can. Stop pleading and start praising. If you need a miracle, an answer from God this morning, they that diligently seek after Him, He is the faithful rewarder of those. Be aware of that. This woman's worship, this woman's worship was driven by revelation. Revelation. I want to show you this last truth here. Revelation. What revelation? What kind of revelation are you living with? I'm especially speaking to Christians who have been Christians a long, long, long time. Some of you are like your pastor who blew it on Valentine's Day. Not this last Valentine, but a while back I was reminded. It was Valentine's Day and Becky came in the den where I was trying to study and had a whole box. And she said, Honey, this, I found this box of all of our love letters that we wrote to one another. And I thought on, on Valentine's Day, I thought, wouldn't it be good if we just sat down right now and read all of them together? I looked at her and I said, Are you crazy? <laughs> Wrong thing to say. She looked at me, she said, I guess the passion, the romance has gone in our marriage. <laughs> Do you have a passion problem, old Christian? This is not necessarily a, a, a malady of young Christians, new Christians, new converts. But it is a severe malady for us that have walked with God a long time. We have a passion problem. The church at Laodicea was much like Simon. Simon was self-sufficient. Simon had no need of Jesus except for entertainment. Simon wanted to be the talk of the town. This woman realized her need 
and our dependency upon the Lord. The church of Laodicea, this is the church where, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will hear my voice and open up unto me, I will come into him and, and sup with him and he with me. This was a church that Jesus talks to in Revelation. And the church uh, uh, is a very well-to-do church, a very productive church. It's a very big church. It's a very full church. By all worldly success, it's a successful church. Uh, Jesus looks at the church though and He has a whole different measure. He has a whole different evaluation. Jesus looks at the church of Laodicea and says, You say that you are rich. You say that you are increased with goods. You say that you can see that you have gold. I say unto you that you're neither hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Uh, you say you are rich, I say you are poor. You say you are clothed, I say you're wretched and naked. God's evaluation of the matter it was a whole different thing. The church of Ephesus, the Lord spoke to the church of Ephesus and said, you've lost your first love. This is a malady, an affliction that can come to us who have walked with Christ for a long time. We, go, we end up going through the form without the substance. We, we have the style without the character. We, 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 we go through ritual. We know when to lift our hands, when to say amen, when to stand up, when to sit down, when to sing the songs, and then we go home and live like we've lived all week without any change. The Lord says, come unto me and I will give you rest. Diligently seek after me. Be like this woman. She had a fresh revelation that caused her worship, her passion, her praise to be driven and fueled by it. Isaiah, when he had a revelation of God, it was one of holiness. John, in Revelation, has a revelation of God's glory. This woman had a revelation of God's grace. God's grace. Truth number four. Truth number four, real wor worshipers arise when they have a fresh revelation of the Lord's amazing grace. Your level of worship, your degree of praise will be just as high as you see God's grace in your life. Well, I see some of you don't understand that. So let me give this story. A minister that I know used to minister in the mental institution. There, in that mental institution, there was a man that they named No Hope Carter. Because of VD, the sickness and the disease had affected this man's brain. He lived in a padded cell. In that padded cell, he would walk back and forth, day after day, from one side to the other, back and forth. And he'd only say two words, two words over and over again. No hope. No hope. No hope. No hope. I'm convinced that the church 
needs a fresh revelation of what Jesus did for us at the cross of Calvary. I'm convinced that the church needs a fresh revelation of heaven and of hell. I believe that the church, uh, I'm convinced that the church uh, that has a passion problem needs to have a fresh vision of what Jesus did for us at the cross uh, in cleansing us of our sins and giving us an eternal hope in Him. You see, without Jesus, without Calvary, without the cross, without the shed blood, there was no hope. There was no hope. You and I were doomed to a highway to hell, eternally separated from God. But there came one, the Son of God, who is suspended between heaven and earth, and He shed His blood, and that blood will never lose its power. It flows the highest mountain. It flows the lowest valley. You need that blood. You need the blood of Jesus. Oh, that's our only hope. Uh, our only hope for heaven. Instead of eternal hell. I'll tell you what will help you with your passion problem. I'll tell you what will cause real worshipers to arise. See Jesus upon the cross. See Him with His shed blood streaming down. See Him as He's being mocked and ridiculed. As they spit on Him and pull out His beard and He prays, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they do. You see, you and I, you and I had a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt He did not owe. We needed someone to take our sins away. Jesus was that someone. When that catches a hold of your spirit, you can't help but lift up your hands. You can't help but praise Him and worship Him and give Him all the honor and the glory and the blessing and the power forever and ever. Let the worshipers arise. Let the worshipers arise. Let the worshipers arise. Let the worshipers arise. Will you arise and worship Him in a new way, in a new walk, with a fresh will? Worship is not a matter of feelings. Worship is determined in the will of a person. It's expressed in the emotions of a person. And it's released through the whole of a person. Simon felt like he had no need. This woman was very well aware of her need. That's why she arose in worship. Simon viewed Jesus as an entertainer. She saw Him as the lover of her soul, her only hope, her only mercy, her only grace. Simon could have cared less about Jesus. Didn't even give him the common courtesies of the day. She lavished her adoration, her devotion upon Jesus. And it caught the attention of God. Simon came away with nothing. This prostitute, she gained everything. A miracle. 
everything. And I expect to see her in heaven one day. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we recognize the hour in which we live. We recognize, Lord, that we're always at one time, one heartbeat, one breath away from eternity. We recognize, Lord, that heaven is real. Hell is real. And Lord, Your love for us at the cross, real. Help us to rightly respond to it. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Isn't it time you say yes to Jesus? Isn't it time? The Lord notices. The Lord notices. He sees the heart. He reads the thoughts. Isn't it time you stop settling for a stub of religion? Isn't it time you stop worrying about what other people think and get focused on what God thinks? Worry about Him? This morning I'm going to pray a prayer, a prayer of salvation. It's a prayer that will make you right with God. It's a prayer that will give you a home in heaven. It's a prayer that will cleanse you from your sins. It's a prayer that will give you a new way of living. If you would like to be included in this prayer, as heads are bowed, if you would like to be included in this prayer that will change you in the here and now and in the hereafter as a demonstration of your faith, I will not embarrass you. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. If you would like to be included in a prayer, a prayer of salvation, by faith, lift up your hand right now. By faith, lift up your hand. God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. 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 God bless you up on the balcony. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. How many more? Just lift it up to Jesus. He's the one that's noticing. God bless you. God bless you. I see those hands back there. God bless you. Yes, all the way in the back. I see that hand, sir. God bless you. Yes, young people. I see those hands. God bless you. Keep those hands up right now. And repeat this prayer after me. Put your heart into what you're about to pray. You're about to make the most important decision of all time and all eternity. Put your heart into what you're about to pray. Pray it after me. Everyone, pray this prayer with me right now. Dear Jesus, I come to you right now. Just like the woman in Luke chapter 7. I confess I'm a sinner in need of a savior and jesus you're my savior i believe you died for me and i believe you rose from the dead with resurrection life i want that life jesus a new life a changed life jesus thank you for hearing me thank you for changing me Thank you for a home in heaven. I thank you that I am saved. In the name of Jesus. Amen.